Joycast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. Joining me today is my co-host, Gabby. Hello, Brendan. Hi, everybody. It's just the two of us today. We're uh, we're flying solo. It's, I think, I was just saying to Gabby, we've earned ourselves a little bit of elbow room at this point in the season uh, to have as a more, a more intimate chat about <laughs> a, a very plotty episode and where the season has uh, brought us so far. Kenny and Frankie, rolling it back. <laughs> Running it all the way back. That's us. <laughs> well, there is a ton to talk about, so, so we're going to get into it. And um, this is a difficult episode to sort of summarize in plot terms, and we're going to spend a lot of the episode recapping certain things and pouring over certain details. Um, but to do our usual sort of capsule plot summary... In episode 8, America Decides. ATN prepares to commence its election night coverage with Tom and Greg in the newsroom as the Roy children initially silo themselves upstairs. Kendall tries unsuccessfully to court Jimenez and nudge him toward blocking the Gojo deal, while Roman meets face-to-face with Mencken and promises to back him with ATN's coverage, win or lose. The election quickly gets tense as incidents of voter intimidation culminate in Mencken supporters setting fire to a voting center in Milwaukee, throwing the state's electoral votes into limbo. Roman pushes Tom to call the state for Mencken, while Shiv attempts to intimidate Greg, who's recently learned of her double dealing with Matson. As Mencken and Jimenez are both within a few votes of the presidency, Kendall is reluctant to back Roman and call the election for Mencken, with Wisconsin still in doubt. He seeks Shiv's advice and asks her to make a last-ditch appeal to Jimenez, which she only pretends to do. After following up himself to get reassurance, Ken discovers Shiv's lie, then gets confirmation of her betrayal with Matson from Greg. Angrily, Ken okays ATN to call the election, allowing Mencken to give a chilling victory speech. Rival networks, including PGN, blame Tom for the premature call, while Shiv begins plotting countermoves with Matson and vows revenge. So that's more or less the, what feels like the climactic event of this season. And, you know, for me, this is where the show cements itself in the TV canon with its homage to one of the other all-time greats, referring, of course, to Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom. Uh, to quote our friend Marie's Twitter bio, today we are all Dev Patel somberly minimizing our folder of Bigfoot evidence so we can cover breaking news. Uh, we're in the newsroom, Gabby. We've been waiting for the ATN episode for I know <laughs> for four seasons now, and we've we've finally got it. And yeah. I guess one of the first things I was thinking of was just kind of initial impressions. I, I, I try to think of a better way to phrase it, but just like, yeah. did you like this episode? Like, how? What, what, what were your feelings about it? Like, does this rank in one of your favorite hours of Succession? Because I have I have kind of complicated feelings. About I have it. complicated feelings too. I don't I don't know. Like it's it's so different in you know tenor to other episodes to, to the entire series really. Just in the sense that the the character drama is sort of taking a back seat. I mean, there is still plenty to discuss there, and. Uh, yeah, just just to have a strictly political episode was, um, you know, we've been waiting for it. We've been looking forward to it a great deal. And I liked it. I don't know if I would say it was my my favorite hour. I mean, I, I do think that they did a really they, they handled it really well, considering the fact that, you know, this is like a mostly British writer's room. And yes, I know they know a ton about American politics, but, uh, you know, U.S. politics says like a very distinct charge to it that um 
you know, not not everybody who's who's uh, you know from the U.S. is necessarily going to grasp this this uh, this kind of weird energy that we have around our election cycles um, because you know we we have such um, you know such an odd system. But yeah. I, I think they captured it pretty well, and um, you know this is this is what what I was expecting. I mean, I was expecting the episode would you know. It, would start off showing that Jimenez was was winning and that there would be some way that they were going to steal the election or attempt to steal the election or, you know, to basically use ATN to steal the election because our media is so, so influential in um, how our elections go down, which we'll get into. But um, yeah, there were some things that, that, that really worked for me, some things that I kind of was like scratching my head about. Armstrong talked about on the official podcast this week in an interview, he talked about how he had always had in mind that they would do a presidential election storyline. Like, obviously, that's been seated since season yeah. one with Connor, right? Like, right. They've, been, they've kind of been laying the track for that, even though they only really started ramping it up last season with the Raisins dropping out and with actually introducing the Menken character. But that he always had this in mind and that he also had in mind that it would probably be the final arc of the show. Because I'm like, how do you escalate things right. from here? Right, like it does feel like the big statement about like these characters and their influence on the world, and this is kind of what we had been alluding to and theorizing in previous episodes of this season. Uh, it's the fulfillment of that idea of the show exploding its sense of insular drama by engineering a catastrophe that has actual material, real-world implications. Right, and crucially, it's one in which all the siblings, not just Kendall, as in season one, where he was responsible for the death of an individual. All the siblings play a role in making this happen. It's, it's very purposeful that the writers actually go out of their way to in, include Connor in this, right? Like he, him dropping out and sort of, you know, in the direction of Mencken and saying it right. looks like Mencken's going to be the president. Like they didn't have to do that, but it, they, they go out of their way to make Connor actually complicit in this as well. And what we were kind of talking about with, you know, the, the weird shape of this episode, it's weird for the, the show to be specific, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's weird to have an episode where it comes at this point in the season arc, in the series arc too, where all of these threads are sort of reaching their climax and their convergence together. And the effect is just like a bunch of sort of like traps firing uh, in sequence. It reminds me a lot of the penultimate episode of The Sopranos, Blue Comet. With the with the with the gang war, right? Um, mm -hmm. All this this tension that had been simmering for the past several seasons suddenly spills over, and there's all this violence, and it's just like, yep, yeah, just traps firing one after another, mm -hmm. and it's it's an unusual episode, and uh, it's it you know for the Sopranos in that context is like it's very action packed, you know, in a way that that show not wasn't necessarily always right, and it right. brought in all the major characters. But it also doesn't have room for the kinds of scenes that the show usually has. It's it's it has a very different energy, and to me, this episode of Succession has such a different energy, where it does revolve around a conflict between the siblings, uh, but everybody is so sort of like occupying these points. Of, like we talked about the idea of triangulation, right? Like you've got mm. Roman on the right, you've got Shiv on nominally on the left, and Kendall's kind of in the middle. And this episode also kind of cements that Kendall is the is the protagonist of the season in the series, right? Because it is it is really all about his choice. He's the one who makes the choice in the end. Roman and Shiv's positions are very settled. So it's all right. about like Ken's got the deciding vote. He's the swing vote. And in which mm -hmm. way is he gonna swing? 
and he kind of swings in the direction, you know, that the only way that he kind of could, right? We have talked about the, I think, bad outcome here, feeling kind of predetermined. And I tried to tease out last week how the characters don't really seem free to make the right decision or to make good decisions, to be able to steer things onto like a better, different course. Um, we know we're watching a tragedy. So even in even though the episode sort of fights in this interesting direction where it seems like dramatically there's this very tantalizing possibility that Ken is going to make what seems like the right decision for him and side with Shiv to like push Roman out and like not throw the election to the fascist because we know like intuitively, even if it's just in the back of our minds subliminally, that this is a show that is going to have a bad ending. You know, it's not necessarily a surprise that Ken gets there, but the the trick of the episode is sort of making you feel that there is a possibility that he will go a different direction. Right. Yeah. I mean, the episode opens up. Well, not opens up, but but pretty early on in the episode, uh, you know, Rava makes that call to Ken and we weren't sure if we were going to, you know, see Rava again, especially in this episode. But, um, you know, she's basically saying that she's in the car with their daughter and she's being followed and she's worried and she wants to go to waste our offices because they have good security there. And, um, you know, Kendall just drops like, oh, yeah, you know, no, that's that's me. Like, I actioned that, you know, without telling her, which is just, you know, so typical Kendall. Like, you know, there's uh, this whole current throughout the episode of like whether Kendall is going to make the right decision for his children for for the future, you know, and, and we sort of started to get at that just a little bit with the conversation with Kendall and Rava last week. And I'm kind of glad they they picked that up again because it did present um, an important question. You know, we've been focused on how Logan grew up, how Kendall, Shiv, Connor, uh, Rome grew up. But, but, you know, the show purposefully doesn't really show us, uh, you know, Kendall's kids all that much or, or how they're growing up and how they are experiencing um, being the next generation of, of, of Roy's. And um, so I think it was smart to bring this back in, to fold this back in and to have this sort of um, permeating Kendall's consciousness throughout the episode and ultimately, you know, influencing his decisions and then showing us, of course, in, in you know, a, a very, very tragic way that um, ultimately uh, his concern for his kids can be, um, you know, thrown out if he has felt betrayed by somebody right that he feels even closer to you know that he feels not necessarily that he feels closer to i don't know how to just you know the, the best way to describe his relationships yes. to his siblings versus his his children but um the dynamics with his siblings and obviously with dad but dad's gone and and so now siblings are the replacement for that um those are always going to be what 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 guides his decisions those interactions um well i and, think i think I think the show yeah. kind of uses ATN and Waystar to like tell a story not just about like a specific media institution. Like we talk all the time about like this is not a one to one analog for like the Murdochs right. and Fox and News Corp, right? It's more generally about like powerful institutions. And that threat of like the characters not being able to make good decisions is kind of like that's what these institutions are built for. Like they're built for bad outcomes, right? Like they're built to do bad things, you know? The yeah the racist news organization is not built for like to for Ken to like do something good with it. It's only built for him to kind of like grease the wheels in the direction of like fascist well, creep. 
and all right. this other stuff, right? And it's it's funny because he tells himself that he can do something good with it, which is perhaps the problem because, you know, when he's on the phone with Rava, first of all, he doesn't even ask Rava to put his daughter on the phone, which is, um, you know, again, just <laughs> father of the year. But he says, like, you know, exit polls are saying Jimenez, honey. Like, I'm not going to let the world push you, which is, you know, sort of a callback to the the language that Rava used last week about the guy in the Ravenhead shirt, like pushing yeah, Sophie yeah. or pushed by her. Just the fact that Kendall even thinks that that this like binary decision is one of, you know, good or bad, as opposed to, you know, there's no winning here, you know, shows how locked into this world he is uh, and the inability to to like Brendan, like you've been saying, for them to to make other decisions. Um, they They simply can't. Well, I mean, he... Really, we we don't want to get to that 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 climactic scene where he like realizes Shiv's betrayal just yet. But you know he is looking for a a justification to make that decision. But he needs like so much to do it. He needs like so much reassurance. He needs something really concrete to feel like he can make that decision. Whereas as soon as he feels like an emotional sort of reason, an emotional pull in the other direction, that's enough because the other choice is just so much easier. Like those laws of inertia and protecting his own self-interest because Roman's already told him that, you know, if we grease the wheels for Mencken, then Mencken will block the Gojo deal for us and we can keep control of the company. Like that decision is just so much easier to make. And there's another huge part of this episode where I thought it very smartly and satisfyingly, at least for me, paid off, you know, keeping Greg around all these seasons. The use of Greg in this episode, I thought was so genius. You know, it doesn't really matter if characters like Shiv, if characters like Kendall have these pangs of conscience and have this inner turmoil, you know, like the question of, well, maybe we'll talk about this a bit more, but the question of like, can we feel sympathy for these people? Are they even human at the end of the day? Well, you know, effectively in terms of their decisions, it just doesn't matter because they can't make good decisions as long as they're in these positions. And even if they kind of want to, there are all these other people around them that the institution creates. They, the institutions create Greg's. They create these people who mm. are willing to press the button and launch the nukes yep. for the sake of their career because they can justify it to themselves as well. I, I have some plausible deniability that it's not actually my fault directly. I'm just a flunky. I'm just following orders. You know. Yeah. I, so, well, what, what, what was the language Greg used at the end about pushing the button? That he's not actually pushing it. He's just. It's not actually. It's not actually me doing it, right? Yeah. 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 He's just setting like, it up for somebody else to do it. He's the guy in the firing squad who's got like, well, but maybe my rifle's unloaded. I don't know. Potentially, it could be somebody else's fault. And so that it's, was it's, a great okay. scene with Jess. I mean, we'll, we don't have to talk about it now, but oh my God, finally giving Jess some interiority. And, and yeah, I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, maybe I'm being too hard on the episode and, and with time and, and with the, the end of the series, it will fit in, um, you know, a little bit more seamlessly. But yeah. It's true. I mean, we've been talking about this for years, just the the ways that the Roy's, um, the the repercussions in in the real world. And and it's, you know, the show has been very restrained. And the examples that we've gotten so far, you know, Kendall and the waiter, Cruises, you know, they've had a lot of emotional impact. But there was something about this episode that I think for people was very upsetting. It seemed like people felt particularly and uniquely betrayed by the characters here. You know, it's 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 maybe it's maybe something worth digging into, right? Like as as people who talk about and analyze the show as as much as, you know, Brendan and I do. Um I'm not really sure what other people expected here, right? Did people 
start to forget about the real world harms after cruises? Like, was this episode so shocking? Um, you know, did well, people for- forget about like Living Plus and how messed up that was? I mean, I, I get it because so many people uh, had really, really visceral reactions to the 2016 election to... Um, you know, I did myself. I, I remember I went to work and, you know, cried in my boss's office the next day. It was awful. It was a horrible day. Um, so I so I understand what it's bringing up for people. But it's interesting because, um, you know, these characters have kind of always, you know, this is n- none of none of their behaviors or decisions here are, are out of line with anything that we've well, seen from them. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know what we're really talking about here. We're talking about some silly reactions we saw on the Internet. I'm never sure, like, I'm never sure, like, how serious people are being with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, not just the internet, too. I, I've talked to some people who are not online who, okay, okay. you know, for, for whom the episode was, was very difficult because of, you know, um, those memories and so forth. So so that's why I'm saying, uh, you know, not not uh, simply brushing it off as a stupid online thing that I, I, I do think this was, you know, it was different for people. And, and we always end up having these conversations, like, about sympathy. And I think Brendan and I have been pretty resolved in how we feel about how we view the show and how we view the characters and and um, our conception of it all, you know, and and what felt inevitable to us here kind of felt like whiplash to others, and 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 maybe that's because, um, you know, mostly there's been focus on the kids' mistreatment of each other and 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 Logan's involvement and parents, and and that's that's been the heavy focus, yeah. So so maybe the the show has just built such gripping family drama that the, the real world harms are forgotten unless they're explicit. But, you know, it's not even like we were really lacking for some heavy interpersonal stuff here. Like for me, the, <laughs> the most horrifying part of the episode was Tom's dead-eyed reaction to, to Shiv's pregnancy confession. Um, you know, this politics stuff, uh, as hard as it was, you know, it kind of felt like it was coming. I, I, I'm not too interested in like policing people's reactions. No, like, yeah. I mean, feel like, feelings of betrayal or anything like that. I mean, again, this is very intentional on the part of the writers. I like, obviously we know intellectually we're watching a tragedy. We know it's going to have a bad outcome. We know this character is going to make wrong decisions in the end, but also the show's working very hard to make it, to make it feel fresh and surprising right. at the same time. They want it to be, because they want it to be engaging. And so like we were just talking mm-hmm. about, the show works very hard to make you think that it is a possibility that Ken is going to make a good decision so that right. it feels all the more stinging when he doesn't. I mean, I love that moment, you know, when he makes that decision, the direction of that sequence, which we'll talk about a bit more, it's just so, like, it is so chilling and exhilarating to me to see that thing finally kind of, like, lock into place. I, I, I always question whether I think the even concepts of identification and sympathy for characters are actually, like, useful words or concepts for, for thinking about drama, you know? Uh, the, like the the bad fan idea that the people are watching right. the show wrong if you get invested <laughs> in the characters i don't know about that i mean like i think obviously i think we get very invested and i think that there's uh i don't really think that that you need to make a distinction between like understanding the show intellectually and feeling some emotional pull when you recognize the humanity of a character right yeah so let's jump into the uh succession electoral world i i want to just give like a really quick rundown of of where we're at here in the show just so people remember because um it's not also so fresh for everybody um but yeah the first time a general election is alluded to is in season one um with regards to to gill and nate and shiv um we know the then president to be president raisin he's never given um, a, a actor to portray him. Uh, Logan speaks to him on the phone in which side are you on? Um, 
very, very, you know, famous scene for for season one heads. Um, the president is a moderate Republican. Um, Shiv continues working for Gill early season two, presumably on his primary campaign. Um, you know, we're also reminded of him needing favorable co- uh, news coverage from ATN in um, the DC episode. Then in season three, Logan needs President Raisin for the DOJ investigation. His relationship with the president starts to deteriorate that season. Um, remember, you can remember Logan giving the phone to Carrie saying, um, you want to hear what it sounds like when the president's angry. That's one of their one of their first flirtations. Um Retired janitors of Idaho is when the president decides not to run for re-election because ATN's new line is that the president is losing his grip. Um, and um, this, you know, prompts the selection of a new Republican candidate in that what it takes episode where we meet Jared Macon. Um, and, and we should make clear for for, you know, non-U.S. listeners. I know we have a, a lot of non-U.S. listeners. And we want to try and, you know, maybe break this down for you a little bit. Maybe you've been like on Wikipedia, like scratching your head. Um, it's very, very unheard of for an incumbent president to resign. Like it just, it doesn't happen. They always run for re-election. They usually win, not always. Uh, most recently, President Trump did not win re-election. Yeah. Um, Brendan has the fact here that uh, LBJ in 1968 was the last incumbent to decline a run for second term. So yeah, the raisin quitting was sort of a this odd contrivance to get Macon as the GOP candidate. GOP is just another term for rep- the Republican Party. So we elect presidents every four years through our electoral college system, which is um, a whole mess that we can talk about when we start getting into the, the state stuff. Um, our party is our, our system is two party Republicans and Democrats, and we have extensive primary processes that last for years before elections. And um, this is in no small part due to our campaign finance laws, which basically permit essentially unlimited campaign spending by corporations. So candidates have to spend um, an inordinate amount of time and energy and money on, um, you know, on campaigning. So, so, so our elections last very, very long, painfully long. Um, and, you know, so ostensibly all of this was happening in the background uh, while the series was going on and we never saw it. You know, we sort of jumped from the selection of Mencken um, in 306 to the election six months later. Um, we, you know, we didn't really get much of the, the Jimenez candidate um, or the race between the two of them, which in hindsight reads a little odd given what has been recently emphasized, more emphasized, I guess, in the last two episodes. Um, to be these like very very huge stakes, right? With this election, that this isn't just like uh, this isn't your 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 grandfather's you know centrist GOP. This is something that could really, um, you know, completely change the country and have a huge you know corrosive effect on on democracy and so forth. Um, but you know maybe they're making a point about how what's despicable or PTSD inducing for us from you know watching Trump and so forth and because you know we're good liberals um it's just quote unquote a night of good tv for these people as uh as roman calls it at the at the end of the evening right yeah i mean there's a lot of clichés about the us political process baked into this episode i was thinking about the common canard that every election now is uh, talked about as the most important election of our lifetimes right. <laughs> uh which of course yeah because we're you know, ostensibly battling back a 
increasingly extremist fascist uh right-wing party uh with every election so you know <laughs> but it, but yeah. yeah it becomes like white noise it becomes like white noise after a certain point and i think it makes sense that for the very insular world these characters travel in that they are kind of tuning this stuff out they don't really they're not really paying attention up until until it's like very evident like you know, we only really started hearing about it in the last episode really right and uh yeah apologies to our u.s listeners for whom all this stuff is old hat but on the on the bright side for our uh Non-U.S. listeners, you are uh, qualified to pass your citizenship exam after you've listened to this <laughs> podcast. Um, I mean, there's yeah, I mean, there's there's some a lot of like details around the edges of the episode that are a little bit fuzzy or that don't quite map onto reality for us. I'm not saying this to diss the episode because I think a big headline for this podcast should be that like trying to satirize the U.S. political system is like really hard to do in a way that like yeah. is nuanced and that like has room for like actual drama. Um, right especially and, when yeah you're it's not what your show is about yeah yeah and we we talked briefly at our episode uh two of this season and rehearsal about how the kind of explicitly ideological like intellectualized white nationalism that like Mencken is implied to sort of stand for mm-hmm. is something that hasn't been proven to have a lot of pull with a general electorate like Trump used some of this rhetoric but he was an anomaly he was a celebrity he had these other bona mm-hmm. fides and a lot of people voted for him, not believing that he was sincere or ideologically committed, which I mean, know, was most, which was mostly there true. Was, it was true. He was not ideologically committed at all. I mean, there's there's yeah, tons yeah. and tons of footage of him from, you know, the 80s, the 90s talking about things. Um, yeah, you know, this is not saying it was like cool to vote for Trump or whatever. Just, but a lot right. of people who voted for him, like, didn't actually buy into what he was saying and thought he was, you know, and, and, and thought exactly. he was just he was just saying a line. Uh, but Mencken's not suggested to be a celebrity. He's suggested to just be this kind of firebrand congressman who really does believe this stuff. And while normally I think this sort of person might not catch on in a general election environment, or I don't think we're there yet in America, the implications also we're getting in closer, season three yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that ATN threw a wrench in the works. You know, where they had this contrived scenario where the incumbent had dropped out. It was already past the primary season. It was too late for them to kind of select uh, a candidate through the normal sort of nominating primary pro- process. So Logan and ATN's sort of vote, as it were, their support really was able to make the difference for Mencken and Logan tapping him personally, you know, the, was able to get this this environment where you have this very fringe extremist uh, actual ideologue as the right. presidential nominee of a major party, which otherwise would seem pretty unlikely in reality. Every Every step of the scenario that's set up in this episode has been contrived to the point you know, that we're pretty far afield of any one-to-one comparisons you can draw. And again, when we say contrivance, I don't necessarily mean it in a negative way. It's just the, it's the way that these kinds of satirical frameworks mm-hmm. and narratives have to work. You have to gin up certain circumstances. It's never going to map on one-to-one. So it's, it's, it's fun for people who know a lot about elections to kind of nitpick this stuff and say, you know, well, hey, I'm an expert in this and this, and the show didn't right. get this exactly right. But it's like, well, the question's always like broad strokes. Does it work? And I think for, there are strokes, a lot of yeah. there are a lot of like broad points where I think that the that the episode would rang true for a lot of people. For sure, yeah. There was something for me that, that was glaringly like you know this would never happen. Um, if it was, it it was something that fit into the world of the show, kind of like a Mankin speech. But we'll talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really smart to not have made Mankin an easy comparison to Trump or any other uh, prominent politician in america i mean even justin kirk said that they didn't talk about trump in prep at all um you know there's resonance in some of the ideology but you know as we said trump trump's not a true believer Mencken being a bit 
pointy-headed, as he says, which is, I I love that term. It's a throwback to Logan asking, (laughs) who's our most pointy-headed fuck? You know, that, that's something that's a huge distinction from, from Trumpism, that, that Mencken is sort of, he has this sort of elite air to him that uh, typically is something the GOP steers clear from, right? Because the GOP, like, we're, we're the heartland party. We're the, you know, the people who um, can, can speak to, to, to real Americans and so forth. And, and In terms of being know. somebody who seems like a self-professed intellectual, right? You mean, because, like, of course, they nominate yes. all the time guys who are, like, incredibly rich and out of touch with ordinary people. Uh, right. But not necessarily it's, people who are like self-styled intellectuals, you mean? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that is it's, sort of out it, of vogue, you're right. The the yeah, the the, the Plato references in in what it takes, um the sort of highly stylized uh speech at the end, you never see American politicians at least on the on a national scale talk like that, you know. It's very very dumbed down typically. This was sort of unique speech that's a very sorkin thing too right like that's like the characters the presidential nominees being like professors and things like that like that's right, a very, right, right that's a very west wing thing i mean like we had obama but obama was like he's the exception of the rule Obama's he's the, he's the west wing. Yeah. he was the west wing president yeah we like old boring people for president well i mean trump you, you can't really call him boring but um really we old don't really people. we don't really elect uh intellectuals in the modern uh modern landscape of of american uh national elections and and even just like mankin's headquarters being in new york city is kind of an odd thing for a republican candidate typically like your headquarters are going to be in a swing state um that's why the jimenez in denver colorado is a swing state um you know it made more sense on a practical level but it was interesting because um yeah it's it's sort of this different kind of of archetype this different kind of uh, yeah, intellectualized right wing guy uh, possibly wouldn't have gotten the Roman and Macon face to face. You know, also kind of uh, goes with this the season's more sort of New York vibe. Um, I liked that. But um, yeah, it's uh, definitely um, he, he's you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about Kirk and Mencken, but um, I think it was very, very smart for the writers to steer clear of of anything that could be too blatantly tied or uh recalled to like t- trumpism you know yeah. there there's there's a feeling in the air and the atmosphere and the rhetoric and so forth that that recalls a lot of it but Mencken is is clearly not trump um yeah i mean i think that it's absolutely true and we've talked about this before how the writers are, they do shortcut a lot and they are expecting, I think, U.S. viewers in particular to just kind of mentally fill in all this stuff with like your memories of 2016 and like Trump and what the feeling around that was like. Uh, but I also think that it's true that these writers who are largely not exclusively British, um, and of course, many of them have worked on shows like Veep where they were, you know, like researched the American political process quite extensively and very steeped in this stuff. But I also think that, you know, the British writers for themselves are probably thinking of Brexit, which is a referendum and it's not an election where they were voting for a particular candidate or anything like that. But it is this similar feeling of this result you get that seems to kind of like tilt reality off of its axis. And mm-hmm. like, that's the main thing, aside from like thinking about like the implications of like a Trump or a Mencken becoming president, and like what their program is and what the material effects are going to be. It's just like this thing that you didn't think could happen or that a lot of people didn't think could happen. And the feeling of like total destabilization and uncertainty. Right. As a result of like that's what the fe- that's the feeling that this episode is really about I think and that's that's a, that's a big part of I think emotionally you know what they were drawing on yeah I definitely see I feel like Brexit it was a binary choice it was super protracted 
a lot of the issues that that it's centered around uh, are issues that you can definitely draw parallels to American political issues. So should we explain a little bit the uh, so what the actual plot of this episode hinges around, like the plot device, before we talk about some more parallels? We'll talk, you mean the, the making making the call? Yeah. So the the specific plot device, the situation that the, these writers have ginned up, because they yeah. they've tried to engineer the situation where ATN can actually put their thumb on the scale in a meaningful way, and. In mm-hmm. this episode, it's about a band of Mencken's paramilitaries who firebomb a voting center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So in the Electoral right. College, where every state is apportioned uh, a certain number of electoral votes uh, based on population, Wisconsin is typically a swing state whose electoral votes are up for grabs, like it swings like from the right to the left, depending on the election year, depending on the cycle. And so it ends up being rather pivotal to the result uh, in many years. Um, and its its margin of 10 ends up being decisive here, although usually presidential elections don't tend to be exactly that close, where it's literally one state deciding it. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it does happen, but it's, it's not like... Yeah. It's yeah, usually it, a, a, yeah, a mix of, of swing states. And like, for example, like a non-swing state would be like New York. New York is always going to be a blue state because New York City is uber liberal and there's all these blue voters uh, similar with like uh, Kentucky, you know, Kentucky is always going to be a red state. So swing right, states right. are the ones that, yeah, um, they're, yeah. They're the elections sort of a... are decided by the people in these, in these states. And if you live in like exactly. New York or California, your, your vote effectively, effectively doesn't count actually. It doesn't, right. or it certainly doesn't count as much as somebody who lives in, in like Wisconsin. Right. We have, we have, we have a popular vote and we track it, you know, the normal way of <laughs> literally who, who won more votes, but that is not how we determine who wins elections. Yeah. Um, in 2000, in 2016, the Republican president won the Electoral College and was elected president, but lost the popular vote. We should uh, we should drop some schoolhouse rock in here. Um, the, <laughs> so, so, but the implication is that Mencken supporters targeted votes in Milwaukee because it's an urban area that consistently tilts heavily Democratic. Major mm-hmm. cities tend to vote Democratic. Therefore, wiping out those votes would predictably tilt the balance of the state toward Mencken. Um, and, and since pivotal votes have never been targeted like this, you know, like an intentional sort of like terrorist attack in a presidential right. election. There actually isn't a precedent for how to determine the winner of that state's election in these circumstances. Like in real life, if this happened, like we, we don't know what we would do. Like I, I, no, it, I don't there is not yeah. a precedent for this. It would be very hairy um, in this situation, like in terms of like what the news would do, like most networks would probably advise viewers that they won't know who won for a while. Pending. Let, <laughs> yeah, pending and let the courts figure out how to proceed. You know, but public opinion can be a factor in the court's decisions. So Roman is seizing on this opportunity to declare Mencken the victor because that puts him in a position of strength in any upcoming legal battles. And it would also rally supporters to his side. That has echoes of both the battle over the Florida recount in 2000 and the stop the steal myth of election fraud in the recent 2020 presidential election that resulted in the January 6th riots uh, at the Capitol. Yeah, I saw a little bit of confusion about ATN um, making the call. So just to quickly clear that up, declaring that they won Wisconsin, it's not it's not legally binding. A news network cannot make a, a legally binding call on, on an election. But the point here is that uh, mass media plays a huge role in animating political bases and uh, maximizing momentum for candidates, which was, you know, that that was the idea here. So you know, everyone knows that the election's going to be contested and hung up in courts. Um, I think even Roman says that, right? But um, these network calls, unfortunately, are 
very, very important in our democratic process and, and, and given our, um, you know, this state by state process that the the electoral college bears out um, on election night. Right. It's like, are we going to call are we going to call Michigan? Are we going to call Colorado? Are we going to call Nevada? None of this is is binding, but it's used to manufacture consent. And it, it tracks that this is how the Roys would win the race. Right. Um, I think there's a point in the episode when. They're talking about the Wisconsin. They're they're calling up each respective camp. You know the kids who are in in contact with the respective camps. Um, and you know somebody from Mankins camp says, you know, to Roman, yeah, yeah, we're doing X, Y, and Z. But can you help with the narrative? And you know, <laughs> this is what this show is about, right? It, it's about who controls the narrative, who makes reality, who shapes it. So that's basically what this is. And uh, for some historical precedents, in in the year 2000, there was an early call in Florida. So the head of the Fox News decision desk who um, recommended calling Florida and thus the election for George W. Bush was actually George W. Bush's first cousin, John Ellis, which is kind of funny. Um, If you think about, you know, cousin Greg roaming around the the newsroom (laughs) and his role. There's Um, more of them. Yes. Lots of nepotism. Um, it was a very crucial projection because it put Florida in the win column for Bush at 2.16 a.m. And then NBC, CBS, CNN, and ABC quickly followed. And, you know, this created the impression that, that Bush had won. Um, and, you know, if you know anything about what happened after that in the 2000 election, um, you know, it, it, it was important um, in shaping the narrative, you know. And then again, if we want to talk about nepotism, not to mention that, that Jeb Bush, Bush's brother, was the Florida governor at the time. So just, you know total nepotism scourge ruining the country you know mass media is going to play this hugely outsized role in in amplifying narratives about which candidates got momentum um you know who's suppressing votes who's sending vans of people to 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 the polls um what's going on with political violence you know and and they ultimately do have you know, influence on the courts. There's that funny line that, that Tom has when he says to Greg, if I miscall Colorado instability, right, then U.S. loses credibility, China spots an opportunity, invades Taiwan, tactical nukes, shit's, shit goes kablooey, and we're back to amoeba. So, you know, that, that was kind of a funny way for them to to sort of uh, to hammer home the point of of how uh, important these these calls are, which you know may seem absolutely insane to somebody um, from another country with a more civilized system. But um, yeah, that is why you know ATN is is uh, so important. Why why it's uh, it's significant that the you know they're well, having an election that they decided that Jesse Armstrong decided to have an election right because this is where ATN really um, has its power. Uh, you know. Well, that power is very dependent and contingent on the role of their sort of supporters and the role of their audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's lines where Tom talks about like, well, we need to respect our audience, which is 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 is, is something that comes up in, uh, it's a euphemism that I think has been established in like court documents and stuff that's like internal, like Fox News communication, stuff like that. Like they say this all the time, like it, respecting our audience means like telling them the stuff they want to hear, right? Like, Right, you know, whether right. that extends to like feeding certain conspiracy theories or not like they're they're both like trying to kind of manipulate their audience like if they call the election for Mencken there's the implication that uh you know when the court battles uh kick off 
the supporters are going to be there, you know, to cause a ruckus and say, hey, you're trying to steal this election back from our guy who already won because the network called it. That means it's real. Um, right. It lends, also, lends legitimacy. But but they're also know, totally that... cowed by them, right? Like they're also right. like they're also very scared of like losing their audience to other networks like Tom talks about like Freedom Voice America, like these other yeah. fringe extremist uh, right wing networks that have real life parallels and like Newsmax or OAN. Um, right. which are real fringe networks to the right of Fox. Um, so they're afraid, you know, if you if they don't say the fringe stuff, if they don't chase the election conspiracies, if they don't sort of flatter the extremist candidate's narrative, then they maybe they lose their audience, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a weird sort of mix where, like, the, it, it, it is like a, a power that ATN has. It is a power that these characters have to sort of, like, grease the wheels and, you know, influence uh, these campaigns and influence these outcomes to a certain extent. Uh, but again, they're not really the ones making the, st- the decisions. They are sort of, ch- they're chasing their audience. They're chasing the trend. Um, and, they're, and they're more reacting than they are acting. So maybe we should talk about, I know we have a lot more we, wanna, we would like to say about like the political stuff and the ATN stuff. But I, I, we should really just talk about the final, I think, sort of uh, uh, climactic conflict of this yeah. episode. And really what comes down to, I don't know if this is an un fair way to frame it as Shiv's failure because it feels like she really blows it of course that takes agency away from Ken as we've described like he, he's really the one who makes the decision here um, right. but this is like you know we if we had the moment of Shiv being confronted with her own flaws in the last episode by Tom you know this is the one where like the wheels totally come off and like the stakes could not be higher and she in her schemes just like all just like blow up in her face you know, she yeah. makes a lot of bad decisions in this episode, but I think that her failure has been carefully set up by showing how much she's been in unraveling since the beginning of the season. Like, even before Logan's death, we saw, like, what the separation from Tom was doing to her. You know, like, and she's a political operator at heart, and she's trying to play a political game by appeasing individuals on multiple sides of this power struggle, much like her entire life she's been trying to appease her father. But she's always kind of struggled to ingratiate when she needs to, and particularly this season, as her emotions have been coming more to the surface level, you know, like factors like grief, pregnancy, her marital strife, these corporate power struggles, and these existential crises she's facing, she's just losing her grip on how to read and manipulate people's emotions. And there are like, in particular, there are three conversations that she has, three one-on-one conversations that she has uh, that she uh, mishandles. It starts with Tom at the beginning of the night where she pulls him aside, I think mainly because, you know, it would do her mood a lot of good if she were able to wind back the clock on her blow up fight with him. Uh, But Tom, who is, you know, we know this Shiv doesn't uh, currently high on cocaine is just not in any state to have an honest conversation with her. And he also seems really done with her, like adding a few more below the belt jabs to the wound she's carrying, talking about how she kind of killed her father and how she hated him. And yeah. when she reveals her pregnancy to him, his response is what suggests to me that they're totally done. Like she's played the last card that she had, just trying to say something that's going to get through to him, that's going to hurt him, or going to, you know, shock him uh, enough to to get him into a place where she can manipulate him again. Uh, but you know, this person that she could always control, he is incapable of just kind of like believing anything that she says at this point. Yeah. It's, How, it's it, haunting dead eyed. He barely reacts. I mean, in my mind, I was like, holy shit. Like what, what, you know, when he says, is it even true? 
what is he referring to? Is is he referring to the fact that she's pregnant? Is he referring to the fact that she's that it's his? You know, like it's it's so devastating that um that he has been so like maimed and destroyed by this family and his relationship that um that he's so cynical that he can't even uh believe his wife and i mean it's funny the way that shiv frames it because she's like there's never a good time to say this you know where of course it's like for for for, for most people who well, that's who are that's under and, that's understating and, and, it a bit yeah this is, this, this and get, is not get a good pregnant. time yeah. it's usually joy it's usually you know it's usually good news and then also yeah her timing is per- particularly terrible um but yeah she she was apologizing for the fight and you could tell she was kind of looking for one in return and he was not not on the same page um he refers to not not sleeping to greg earlier in the episode due to marital strife um yeah and i, I mean I, I, the only way that that this pregnancy confession was going to be sort of uh happy or positive would would be if it sort of dovetailed with the sort of newfound honesty that they had been toying with in earlier episodes but of course um you know the fight they had the night before the election previous night um you know very much knocked the wind out of tom's sails it seems um yeah, yeah, and so 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 the confession was really going to come, I, I guess, at a point when he wounded her enough. And here it was Tom saying that she sort of killed Logan. That was, you know, that was more wounding to her than anything that he said the night before about her being a bad parent or having no sense of self or uh, not capable of love and so forth. That comment about Logan was really what, um, you know, set her off. And, and the response was just was just devastating. And uh, yeah, kind of it. You know, it reminded me a little bit just in the moment of, of Kendall saying to Logan in the, the line in the meadow fight at Josh Aronson's house, you know, you've lied so much, you know, you don't even know what's true anymore. Uh, kind of feels like that's sort of what's going through Tom's head at this point. It's like, you know, what, 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 what have you given me to make me feel that I can believe you, you know, which is, yeah. uh, it's, it's very sad. Yeah. Total sidebar. Uh, I'm not sure where this that shooting this episode fell on the schedule, but this was the first episode where I was like, oh, she's absolutely pregnant. Like, she was really... Like, Snook was absolutely showing in this episode. Like, they they tried to hide with costuming and framing. They in, tried, in yeah, places. yeah. But, it, but this was the first episode where I was like, okay, it's it's clear like, that she's pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what month this was, but, you know, um, Snook was probably, yeah, well into her second trimester, maybe even third at this point. So, yeah, um, you know, it, it had to come out. Uh but it's surprising pretty, that, none of the, that nobody else in the episode notices it. But uh, but yeah, this was this was the, this was definitely like I thought like a big. It seemed like a jump in time almost, you know, like because she was definitely showing yeah. that she hadn't been in the previous episode. You almost felt like maybe she was going to tell her brothers because she then after that goes to them to say, you know, yeah, she it seems like she wants tough to, in her like, relationship, yeah. and yeah, she she says something like there are there's things that I want to tell you guys. Um, but then they get interrupted, and you I just I wondered in that moment if she was going to tell them. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, because yeah. the other the other reason that she's talking to Tom and trying to get him back on her side is because she's worried because she had brought him into her negotiations with Matson, and so right. she's really vulnerable there. And she finds and she's already found out from Matson that uh, that Greg knows about their alliance. So that's the second big conversation where she has to pull Greg aside and try to threaten him. And I was like, oh, this is so the wrong way to handle. Greg, yeah, someone, need, someone needs to do bad. an edit of Greg as Michael Clayton saying, I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you buy, <laughs> right? 
Like, just pay Greg. Pay the Greg. Just like Kendall with the watch in season three, right? Like, Shiv's undone in part by her elitism. Like, she needs Greg's loyalty, but she looks down on him too much to even offer him a favor or a sweetener in exchange for his silence. Greg is always around. He sees everything, and he's very conscious of Shiv's weak, diminished status at the company. He sees through her bluster and her threats, which are completely immaterial. She just does a typical kind of profane monologue about how she's going to rip out his insides or whatever. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And when Ken later approaches him, he sniffs out in an instant that like, okay, this is the time to rat her out. Like Tom had told him earlier, you know, information is like a bottle of fine wine. You keep it and then eventually you smash someone's face in with it. That's what he does. Another great payoff for Greg, like that combo shrug and smirk that he gives Shiv through the glass as she watches him leave, you know, so much for the quad squad, I guess. Shiv is just, <laughs> Shiv is unraveling, you know, and, and she, uh, very alone, very scared. And I think there was, you know, she's got a lot of pent up anger at Greg that was unleashed here a little bit at a very inopportune time. But, you know, she, she, she references the disgusting brothers. I, I wondered if we were ever going to hear that term ever again. Um, but she's mad at him. She's mad at him for, you know, uh, his weird relationship with Tom and, and, taking Tom out to sleep with models and stuff. I mean, she she really doesn't like Greg. And so I think uh, there were other emotions spilling over here. And um, she does. You know, ta- av- but tactically, this was a, a, you know, a terrible move. Yeah. I mean, she does avoid him, right? Like, I'm like, I'm pretty sure like Kendall is the only one of the main siblings who really spends any significant one on one time with Greg. Right. Like, I don't think Roman is ever really one on one with him. I think this is certainly the longest conversation Shiv and Greg have had since season yeah. one. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's, there's really no fond feelings there. Yeah. It's funny you bring up the disgusting brothers thing. Yeah. She, it really does seem like she's been stewing on that, right? Like she's still not over bit. that. Like she's the, not happy. Yeah. yeah she can't, yeah. <laughs> well, this, this open relationship, she can't handle Tom she, sleeping she, around. Right. She talks about Greg, like the other woman a little bit sometimes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Something for the Tom Greg. Sorry guys. <laughs> right. So, so, um, yeah, uh, that was blunder number two. But then, yeah, the, of course, the pivotal one is the conversation with Kendall, which I thought was so fascinating. And I still haven't totally decided how I feel about it, just in terms of like trying to understand all the dynamics that are there. I felt that that scene had when he approaches her at the end because Ken is feeling pressure from Roman to call the election for Mick. And he's at this point, he's looking for an emotional reason. He's looking for something practical to uh, tell him that it's tell him that he he should push back against Roman, you know, to secure that. So he tries yeah. to have an honest conversation with Shiv. And, you know, we've seen them kind of in this context before. Like, it recalled Safe Room a lot to mm-hmm. me. And, you know, the way that yes. they embrace it, like, he asks her for a hug like he did in Safe Room. And I also thought of In Too Much Birthday, where, you know, they embraced briefly at the when she arrived at the party and the camera really lingered on mm-hmm. Kendall's, like, wistful face there. Like, he does have a real kind of, like, sentimental attachment to his baby sister, in these moments that you feel you know usually he's seeking some reassurance or comfort from her and crucially in all those scenes like she's withholding or she's oblivious to what the gesture actually means to him like she seems totally disconnected from him even as he is in those moments like trying to reach out to her like he actually does try to make himself vulnerable to her he makes himself very vulnerable here like even not necessarily just vulnerable but just he's just honest he's very emotionally honest i mean the stuff about you know, him being a, a bad father, but even just him saying that, like, well, you know, Mankin and Roman have this relationship and I think I might be threatened by it. Like, that's a that's a something that uh, 
require some self-awareness, right? And some, you know, uh, giving up of your pride to confess that to your sister, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I so think... Kendall is looking for, yeah, an emotional, he, he's, he's, he's tapped into his emotions here. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, it, the way that it all comes together is, is, is so sad. Um, I mean, Roman is such that. a, is such a demon in this episode, right? He's <laughs> like, he's like, he's in this very static position. Like there's no like growth or like, he's not really, he's just pushing in the same, he's just pushing the same buttons the entire episode. Yeah. And he's, and, and Kendall is kind of approaching Shiv asking her to be his better angel. You know, like right. he's accused her of being, you know, not a good person in the past, but in this moment, it's like, well, I really need to believe that there's somebody here who's going to like speak to like whatever my better instincts are. Right. Somebody yeah. who's going to speak to my humanity. And then, you know, if you notice the the expression on Strong's face when Shiv tells him he's a good guy, like he really takes that in. Like it really does make mm -hmm. it, it really does move him to hear that. It is something that you feel like is a great relief to him. And I think that yeah. is a big part of why, like the revelation of Shiv's betrayal turns Ken so decisively against her because he's reflecting Absolutely. back on, on their entire because again like it's meaningful that they have that gesture of the hug because it invites the viewer to think back on all those other instances when ken has tried to unburden himself to his sister and try to make himself vulnerable and realizing that not only is she not being straight with him in that moment but that possibly throughout their entire relationship she has not reciprocated that honesty from him like that's where all that pain and that yeah. real vindictiveness comes from and that's why it's strong enough for him to go the other direction like it's not like he's torching their relationship it's like and i think in his mind it's like there is nothing there for me to torch yeah uh, it's so sad it's oh god and and yeah i mean it's it's always hard to see shiv do poorly <laughs> in like a political episode because it's the one area of her life where we've seen her derive like a real sense of meaning and purpose that's completely unrelated to her family or her husband or men um you know, and I don't think she's an idiot strategist. I think she generally does know what she's talking about in this arena. She has the experience. Um, she, you know, she knows what the deal with Mencken is. You know, her problem has always been that she she needs to keep her options open, and and she's not uh, equipped enough. She doesn't have the emotional acumen to to manage keeping all those options open. Uh, she flubs so hard here, and uh, you know, it's very very hard to see. And I think. You know, we were so uh, maybe like uh, I, I think as viewers, people were really happy to see Kendall and Shiv sort of unite earlier in the season. Um, there's something about the two of them as as um, you know, kind of the heart and soul of the show. Maybe that that really um, you know makes us want to see them work together. Um, and, and, and because we've seen them, <laughs> like Brennan said, we, we've seen them get so close to it. Um, and, and we've seen how, you know, if, if they did unite and if they did, you know, put aside their differences and so forth, um, you know, who knows, maybe they could, maybe they could figure their way out of all of this mess. I mean, who knows, but, um, it's that, it's yeah, that it's, tantalizing it's, possibility that the writers keep there intentionally so that it's all the more painful when it doesn't work out. Like, it, right. like, like in it's, practical it's, terms, it's not possible, but it, but it's one of those things where it's like that, that sliver of possibility is just so heartbreaking. And this is where, this is where the specter of, of Logan, you know, sort of comes in. You know, we, we haven't, you know, had Logan for a few episodes, but Logan is still there and Logan, you know, driving his kids apart and, uh, you know, 
breaking up their alliances at any possible turn because it was a threat to him um, is just playing out here now in his absence. Um, and it's it's just a really, really devastating, um, although entirely predictable kind of final manifestation of the tra- of, of the trauma of, of what Logan inflicted onto them, of, of what he did to, to poison this dynamic, um, to make them not trust each other. Yeah, but I, I, I just I also wanted to talk really quick about that scene when Kendall is being vulnerable and he talks about, you know, saying that he's he's not a good father, that he doesn't think he's a good father. Um, I mean, that obviously like hit me right in the gut. Like if we're just talking about things that I really care about in the show and what I was talking about last week, um, I'm really glad that that they kept that thread going and and the way that it relates to um the election is is basically right you know you, you you know that is the show that is how Jesse describes the show is how these um these relationships and these dramas and and how how they map on to the real world and and, and vice versa but um yeah shout out to to, Sno- to Snook here who um she really gave me chills in her response to Kendall saying that he's not a good father she says you know in a very very you know non-emotional tone just no no you know you were okay it was so Logan-like to me in affect and intonation. Like, I really was sick to my stomach, um, you know, hearing her respond in this way. Like, it just, it sounded so much like something that, that how Logan would respond to Kendall asking for, you know, some sort of emotional reassurance. It reminded me of uh, the season two finale before Kendall goes and, and makes his, his, uh, has his press conference and the conversation with dad when he says, you know, when he brings up the boy that, you know, the waiter and, and Logan's like, no, 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 you know, NRPI, no real person involved. Like you're fine. You're golden. That's sort of what this reminded me of. Um, and yeah, so I just, um, for me, you know, all, all the kids have been sort of adopting Loganisms in certain ways, but this felt very, very organic. Like she is just really her father's daughter. Um, and she's, you know, this not even trying. This is just who she is. Um, yeah. Also just like relieved at the frustration of the Ken family stuff in this conversation. Um, and glad, you know, we get some clarity here as sad as it is that he is indeed afraid of, you know, what, what lurks in him after being raised by Logan. And, um, you know, yeah, we've been talking about for so long what's, what, what gets passed down. I mean, that's, that's, you know, another huge element of the show logan's caregivers to logan as caregiver and um you know the payoff here i think was was massive um that he was able to have this fleeting moment of self-awareness and then completely repress it toss it to the side once the pain of of shiv's betrayal and and the emptiness of their relationship as brendan said sort of comes to the fore for him um yeah i mean there's no hope really for kendall as a father i don't think as things are status quo um well i love that real remedy for what logan did to his siblings to him and his siblings to their dynamic the way he poisoned it um he didn't even give them a chance to to learn how to rely on each other they they don't know how and yeah i mean i knew this was all coming but it's still so fucking sad i love that observation of that you made gabby i had not made that connection at all like that that gesture that snook makes that is very loganish with like no you're okay like the she's like she's like no no the inti- like, he's, the he's like i'm not a good father yeah yeah the intonation yeah. is yeah it is very similar to cox's delivery in that nrpi scene and of course that recalls yeah. um 
what Kendall's response to that scene was, which was to to, to, exactly, to turn yeah. decisively against him, right? And they both kind of they're they're all becoming their father. They're all becoming Logan in different ways, right? They're all reflecting mm-hmm. different elements of him. You know, yeah. Ken makes the decision to, uh, as the parlance goes, fuck them kids, and uh, Roman is just kind <laughs> of in the Logan pocket the entire time, right? Or like at least he thinks he is. You totally, know, doing yeah. what he thinks Logan would to do, just being the agent of chaos, as we've seen. Logan be in the past, but we should talk about it. Yeah, just like that final scene, or like that climactic scene in that conference room where Ken realizes, you know, that betrayal and all the plates yeah. that Ship had been juggling just kind of crash around her. I love the choreography where Ken steps out on one side of the conference room to call Nate, mm-hmm. and then when he has that realization, he crosses the room to Greg, and the the entire time the editing is. Snook's eyes following him. Yes. And then after he has that conversation with Greg, he en- re enters from the other side, sort of like he, he leaves the room, like as the Kendall we knew, and as he, he comes back, another one. He comes back mm-hmm. as like Dark Kendall, as like, you know, as, as the, yeah. as the Logan version of himself. It reminds me very much of, you know, uh, for those who have seen the great series, The Shield, which did a, which did a very like determined, tragic, devastating final arc. There's an episode called Parasite in the final season where all the characters are gathered in a room to watch an interrogation. Those who have seen this episode know what I'm talking about. And there's this very key movement down like a parallel corridor. I was just reminded sort of irresistibly of that. And, you know, we'll talk a bit more about the direction of this episode, but the way that the the music drops out when Ken makes his decision and the camera stays tight on the faces and the sound design is just like, emphasizing like Roman's voice echoing as he calls for Tom and the footsteps clacking mm-hmm. like all of a sudden like you really feel the seconds passing in real time and you feel the weight of that decision in that moment wonderfully directed scene you know that and of course that movement of uh Ken uh sort of circling that room it's another iteration of that closed loop system right where you you can't escape uh your your true nature you just come back you you try to escape it and you come back to the the same point you began at um yeah and poor shiv just like <laughs> even when kendall's leaving the room and she's like don't call them and they're like why he's like she's like uh because because they're busy such a bad <laughs> liar in this episode like i, I know some people <laughs> thought so that bad. like is it is it realistic that shiv would would lie this badly and i mean again i think mm-hmm. the entire season has done the work of setting up like how yes. sh- rattled she is and how much like the wheels have come off her defense mechanisms right and she would have done better posture at a, she at always a, puts up yeah at a different point in the series but at this point it makes perfect sense for her to yeah but at the same Um, time the this episode's uh central conflict is another iteration of what we've already seen in season three's what it takes where shiv's you know democrat style triangulation ended up ensuring mm -hmm. the worst outcome we talked about this in our premiere episode rather than pushing for the establishment option in the current vice president boyer she held fast to her favorite Republican candidate, Salgado, who had no other contingency but had promised to work with her, and so was in her self-interest, and that is what enabled Roman and Mencken to win the day in that hotel suite. Yep. And it's the same story here on a grander scale, which is another instance of, as we've talked about in the past, the show's circular storytelling, not just repeating itself, but tightening into a vortex or a whirlpool with mounting pressure and higher, more devastating consequences. Yeah, I would definitely recommend if you haven't gone to go back and rewatch uh, what it takes from from season three. Um, just a, a perfect complement to this episode. I mean, the literally the precursor to this episode, and yeah, a lot of the ways that that Shiv discusses um, the election outcome here is you know 
basically just copy and pasted from the way she was talking about, you know, picking yes. Rankin, the primary. And of course, <laughs> that was their primary. Yeah. And of course, also directed by this episode's director, Andre Park. Right. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, this season, about the tragedy and the poignancy of, of Shiv's situation. I, I bring that up almost to say, like, don't yell at me uh, for, for talking about what I'm about to talk about, because, like, I think we, we give Shiv a lot of grace on this show. But, I mean, like, this was the, one of the most humiliating moments I can remember on the show for, like, any character, right? Like, the way that Shiv loses in this episode is just, like, completely devastating in the way she's just reduced to kind of babbling about pluralism and the republic you know she's just completely incapable yeah. as in the conversation with tom of sounding like she means what she's saying like like it right. like she really is just like not only is her betrayal exposed but she's exposed as some as someone who just she can't say something honest she can't she can't voice a, a convincing argument or she can't even voice something that sounds like it's coming from herself like that sense of like not having an actual identity is very strong there i mean like snook plays that so well i thought just like that absolute desperation and and the way tom literally called her out on that and and made it (laughs) very very textual that she has no sense of self yeah uh, it feels like a lot of a lot of these a lot of these like small uh truths that we know about the characters are being spoken by uh people in their lives in the, in these final episodes as they wrap up um or they're saying them themselves you know like Kendall acknowledging that he's probably not a good father yeah it, it's it's a lot of stuff that we that you know that's been simmering and that we've we've been discussing and that we've used to to analyze the characters that um you know that is uh really being stated kind of out loud now um yeah. I think in a very ele- elegant you know subtle enough way yeah, so I think the characters have all had moments in the previous episodes where they've all been kind of like down in this season. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the sort of like pending Shiv W is like a running joke at this point. Like, oh, any minute now, Shiv is going to pull off the epic girl boss move <laughs> and like, and like w- win one over her brothers. Well, we've got two episodes left, so it better happen soon. But I'd be like, I kind of hope that it does. Like, I hope that she actually does find a way to, you know, at least undermine Roman or Kendall with Madsen in the next couple of episodes, if only because I cannot imagine, like, a more complete, like, evisceration of this character, like, a more yeah. complete demolition of, like, every of like everything that she's been about. Like, the, like nothing else, like, there is nothing else I think that the show could do to her that would really uh, be this dramatically potent. So I, I, so I kind of hope she manages at least to, like, get some kind of small win before the end of the series, even if it's just like a completely spiteful, Something, bitter yeah. one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it would make sense dramatically. Really rough, rough downfall. Unfortunately, yeah. she is going to be seeing her mother next week. So <laughs> don't know. <laughs> that really primes her for being, for being in a, in a good state. Yeah. But, um, and then that scene is also followed by, uh, that, interlude with greg and jess in the hallway Mm. um another great justification of greg's character like we talked at the top about how this episode justifies greg being kept around all this time and i think the scene is all the more chilling for how kind of empty a vessel the character is and frankly what what a kind of like gormless affect nicholas braun has is put to great use here like he doesn't grasp the significance of this moment and he's kind of like willfully ignoring it he's rejecting all mm-hmm. accountability for it like it doesn't ma- doesn't make a difference what he does he's replaceable he might as well be the one to press you know the big red button 
Jess draws that equivalence for him to, you know, like, you're going to do this thing that's going to, you know, in metaphorical terms, launch a nuclear attack. I think calling up, for those who know the story, the famous story of the 1983 Soviet nuclear false alarm, where there was a, a technician who saw you know, a incoming nuclear attack on the radar and assumed it was a decided it was a glitch and didn't launch a counterstrike and it turned out to indeed be a radar glitch so the decision of this one guy to sit on his hands averted a nuclear war um and i think she's she's drawing that equivalence for greg to say like hey you know maybe if you sit on your hands for a few minutes maybe if you slow walk this maybe something changes maybe something happens and then they yeah. can't call the election you know you're a small moment of inaction a small moment of resistance could uh, could make the difference here, but Greg goes, "Wow, this is crazy," and just keeps going with what he was doing. Um, it's very very interesting scene, and very purposeful. I think that that Jess is there. I wonder if they're building towards maybe some resolution for that character who traditionally has. I mean, like, I think this is the first time we've seen her have any dialogue like that's not addressed to Kendall or not at Kendall's side, you know, or like not operating for sure. like, yeah, directly no, in his I mean, interests. Yeah, really, just like the first sense of of interiority that we've gotten from Jess which is great because she's she's you know she's such an important character she, in terms of what she does for Kendall um he relies on her so much and uh you know clearly takes it for granted and, and we take for granted that she has uh you know a whole life and is a whole person outside of Kendall yeah. and um you know she's a young woman of color living in New York City mm -hmm, like yes mm -hmm. she works for this this you know <laughs> right-wing kind of ogre I mean Kendall, of course, is not, you know, he's not his dad. He's a little bit different. He's a little bit more hip and, and uh, socially liberal and so forth. But, you know, we can assume that Jess is sort of horrified at this election result, right? Like, I think it's a pretty fair assumption. Um, and, you know, by asking Greg or, you know, not, not flat out asking him, but sort of insinuating, like, you can wait, like, you can wait a couple seconds. Um and him just completely, you know, her being, yeah, her being the the woman here, uh, the the assistant, and then Greg being, you know, sort of the white man nepo case. Um, it's, you know, they they don't put too fine a point on it, but it's enough to sort of get you to see um, what they're trying to get at with sort of the material stakes of the election, the broader repercussions. Um, and it's interesting to fold in these these smaller characters as it's all going down mm -hmm. yeah we got a mention of fakret in this episode too at the very end right I don't know if that was interesting yeah, yeah. Just, they, they, they keep folding well, in all these Fikret, outside characters yeah fakret and jess are like you know sacred to kendall he they're the two that that he said to logan and kianti that he wanted to keep you know if he if he if he leaves the company just like give me jess give me fakret those are those are his uh you know top dogs and i've seen some speculation that this might be you know, this might be some motivation for Jess to possibly finally leave Kendall, which could send him truly spiraling. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and it's 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 not a, a, a we're kind of at the point in the season and in the series where I guess some some light predictions are sort of uh, kind of inevitable. But uh, yeah, I think that would I think that would be an interesting grace. No, I think that would that would work if Jess decides to bail. It would work at this point. Yeah, that that would work for me. <laughs> but we should go to formalism corner. We've just talked about the direction of that climactic scene. And we mentioned already a couple times that uh, this episode's director, Andre Parikh. Um, we didn't talk too much about his direction in our um, in our Kill List episode. He directed episode five of this season. Uh, but that's okay, because we have a chance to look back at his history with the show now. Um, for those who don't know, don't remember, uh, Parikh is a career 
cinematographer. He actually was the cinematographer for the uh, first few episodes of the series um, for the pilot for episodes two and three with Mark Mylod. Um And, you know, that history with the show means that he is a kind of trusted hand who they turn to for highly complex episodes like the wide ranging uh, location shoots in Kill List or for big set pieces like uh, hunting with the boar on the floor scene. And in particular, like this episode has just like a dizzying number of production variables to wrangle with needing to convey the reality of a 24-7 news network running in the background at all times. Um, a scaled up version of what Park did with season two's Vulture, where he oversaw the creation of another media company within the show. There are a lot of shots where there has to be news footage and commercials playing in the background. In particular, that climactic scene where Shiv's betrayal is caught out. There's a there's a screen out of focus behind her with what seems to be a pharmaceutical commercial. You can see a big pill bottle filling <laughs> the screen, which is a funny reminder of who ATN's audiences. I think uh, Parks in an interview yeah. <laughs> that they directed something like six hours of programming just to have stuff to fill the screens, uh, which is an incredibly yeah. daunting sort of like second unit job. And so having that experience of working closely alongside Mark Mylod in the early days and, and all, along with Adam McKay, establishing the visual look of the series, it's not surprising that Parek's style is pretty similar to Mylod's, but it is distinct. He favors these long lenses and zooms so he can shoot at a distance. Emily St. James once memorably called this uh, a wildlife documentary about rich people, like the way that Mylod shoots. Um, <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a cliche to say that cinematographer directors think more in terms of composition than blocking, and that would also undersell some of what Parek has done with blocking, in particular the way he directs Bore on the Floor. But I think his episodes are distinguished in particular if you look at them together by these certain witty, bold compositions that have an unsubtle quality to them, an inappropriate, unsubtle quality, I would say. In particular, I always think of that shot in Hunting of you know Logan draping his arms over Kendall uh, to make them mm -hmm. look like a monster with two faces. And in What It Takes, that shot of Mencken kissing the Coke can, which is a very blunt sort of ad busters device that buttons the complex murky character dynamics in that episode um, so i just wanted to shout out a few compositions and you know shots and images that i really liked from this episode uh, there are a bunch of shots especially early on with the characters holding multiple phones to indicate that they're playing both sides also to indicate how much they're juggling which is very apt in shiv's case it echoes the theme of triangulation and also the stakes that they sort of metaphorically have the whole world in their hands. There's the touchscreen fiasco where they're moving a replacement touchscreen through the ATN studios. Um, this was actually in the teaser, and it's such a great shot. I'm glad they highlighted it, where it pulls back to this sort of like master shot where you can see the screen rolling bottom left to right, and then Tom, Greg, and the newsroom producer Pam running top right to left. Like the numbers are going one way, and they're going the other. Um, it's very, very, very witty composition. And then also the one, I, the one that was most striking to me was like the first time that the siblings d actually descend into the ATN studios. They like breach that invisible wall. Uh, mm -hmm. When Roman enters the ATN floor, his blue suit blends in with the blue walls, and his yeah. it's, you can only see his head moving above the cubicles. And I was just reminded irresistibly of Greg referring to Logan and ATN as Jaws. And uh, that's what he looks like. He looks like a shark. He looks like a shark's fin moving through the sea. 
I, I particularly liked a shot of, I mean, I don't know this stuff as, as well as Brenda and our listeners and guests and so forth, but after Greg and Tom do the cocaine behind the, the whiteboard, um, they both each like look out <laughs> from what, like to the outside from one side of the whiteboard, like they each pop out. Um, and it was just like a very, very funny shot. Um, but we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll go into the, the newsroom shenanigans a little bit also now to in our final act here (laughs) (laughs) we we mentioned the detail that they filmed the atn scenes at the cnbc studios in uh in new jersey where apparently they were on a very they were on a very compressed schedule they had like two weekends because of course they could only shoot like from friday night to monday morning um so that must have been a really hectic shoot i mean that's another reason i like shooting these sort of like long shots like these these long lenses make sense shooting at a distance Mm -hmm. so you don't have to like cut in too much you can uh, you, you you have those shots where like all the actors are in the frame to work with, which is you know it's very much in the succession style. Uh, that's another reason that that makes sense here. Yeah, no, he's got some pantheon episodes. It, it's it's been nice that they've brought back repeat directors that Scafaria got to this season, Perex getting two. Um, I mean, they definitely yeah. found their crew over the seasons for sure. They found it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, just to I guess I guess we we do want to unpack a bit more the the ATN stuff and you know to do that we can talk a little bit more about the framing of the presidential race. We've talked about Mencken a bit, but talking about Jimenez, we finally see a little bit of Daniel Jimenez, the Democratic presidential nominee played by Elliot Villar, um who doesn't make a huge impression, but I think in a purposeful way. We learn that he's a governor possibly right. of Colorado where his campaign headquarters is. Uh I think this episode makes clear in particular why the show had to create a new character to be the Democratic nominee in this election. And instead of just reusing Eric Bogosian's Gill, uh, we know that Gill is the kind of shrewd political operator who might have elected to make a deal with Kendall and ATN in exchange for mm-hmm. taking out Matson. Uh, but that would have upset the entire plot dynamic they wanted to execute because, of course, when Kendall calls him at his initially, he gives him absolutely nothing. He completely no-sells it. Um, he ref- he doesn't want to say anything on the phone. He's depicted as yeah. a very safe, controlled kind of democratic politician who is careful not to dirty his hands, which I think is honestly a realistic depiction of how a democratic candidate in the current climate would respond to an offer like this. Uh, although strict right. realism is not always the governing principle in this episode, there's another implication there that Jimenez is just a bland, sort of safe, moderate candidate of the type that Democrats tend to run against incumbents. Um, you know, right. thinking... and then he probably, yeah, he chose Gill as like a, you know, his more, more extremist VP. Well, as a, as a, as a sop to the left, they but tend also, to do. yeah, as exactly, a sop to the yeah. left, but also, you know, we've also, it's also been shown that uh, Gill is not above like moderating his positions in some way in order to no, to maintain certainly a hold not, on power. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense that you know they picked that kind of candidate uh there's not much to delve into there i I, the phone call with kendall was kind of funny um just (laughs) just the way kendall talks to people like this um and telling him to like stay hydrated and and may the best man who's gonna protect american jobs and reign in tech win uh (laughs) like you can tell him menace he just like wants to hand the phone back to nate um these guys have to like talk to people like Kendall. What does he? What does he um, say to him? Is he, is he say like great to talk? Is is he? He says good to connect. Basically, uh, we we also get a little bit of a Ravenhead in this episode where he gets a he gets a nice juicy scene. Uh, this actor Zach Robidas does 
Uh, he's been with the show since since season one, and he gets to to let this this Tucker impression rip. Uh, that I, he he seemingly he, I think he's been practicing. It's it's it's, it's pretty good. Like his character's not like a one to one Tucker Carlson analog, but that's probably the closest yeah. one that we've we've got. Again, somebody in this character seems has been established to be like an actual white supremacist, Holocaust denying fascist, uh, as opposed to what many people think of someone like Tucker Carlson, who is someone who you can hear spouting a lot of this rhetoric on cable news well until relatively recently, um, is more of a cynic who has sort of shape-shifted a lot during his career. Yeah, I mean, wow, major shout-out to Zach here. The speech was absolutely chilling. Um, yeah, and some of the stuff that maybe slightly bothered me about the the episode and that I felt like it neutered some of the actual ideological stuff Um a lot of that was remedied by by some of this Ravenhead stuff. Um, it was just so intense. Um, by the way, <laughs> Zach Rubitis seems like a really, really good guy based on his social media. So don't <laughs> yell at him if you see him on the street. <laughs> um, yeah, he's always been excellent, but but we haven't really gotten this much of him since Safe Room. And, and we've never really gotten much of him, um, you know, doing his thing um on on you know on camera so um he really got to shine here and this was definitely the most like nakedly ideological rhetoric of the whole episode and and just you know laden with emotion he says shut up enumerate residuum like doing an impression of of an elite talking down to atn's viewers um there's also you know this thinly veiled allusion to the dems coming to your house to take your guns and um, make your kids trans and stuff. So, you know, it's it's very resonant with today's discourse. Um, the performance was very haunting. Um, Ravenhead obviously gets a, you know, a fat paycheck from ATM, but he's definitely a, a true believer and he's this big avatar for, you know, the right-wing political world of the show, you know, the the guy in the Raven head shirt push, pushing Sophie. Like, I, I'm not really sure if there's an analog for him, really. Like, he seems to be sort of this, like, superstar um, in this world. So, yeah, um, I really, really enjoyed that. I wish that we get more from, like, the other anchors. I, I always wish that. There's a, um, there's this blonde anchor who's been there for, for some time, and she's never had dialogue or anything, but there's, like, this funny moment where she's, you know, the all the anchors are kind of like getting ready they must be on commercial or something but she like drinks from a water bottle and it's like orange it looks like it's a gatorade and she kind of like puts her hand over her mouth and then we see some of the other ones snacking um but nobody gets any uh no, no none of the other anchors get to talk i think one of them does but it's just exposition stuff about like how it's going to be a long night ravenhead is the only one yeah, who yeah. really gets um these ideological moments um and well earned you know based on how they've developed the character throughout the years i was just looking on imdb i think they've hired like actual journalists to play some of these atn uh anchors over the years yeah and and, uh some of the (laughs) some of the oh well yeah (laughs) some of the some of the character names were cracking me up like the 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 the, the atn journalists i could identify the credits were named craig hamilton uh peter sampino delta pike ben stove ben stove is a hilarious name (laughs) That's a, that's a that's a that's a Twitter handle for somebody. Ben, I'm at Ben Stove. 
Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, like the people drinking Gatorade and stuff. Like, there's a lot of mention of like rituals for election. Like, in addition to the drug yeah. use and footwear, there's lots of emphasis on food and hydration. We mentioned like stay hydrated, like the cans of still water that Pam is crushing. Uh, Roman telling Becca that he doesn't run around town like a food bike guy. The bodega sushi, you know, Tom. Rep- <laughs> well, Tom, Tom, Tom asking Darwin if like he does anything different if he's sh- they wear adult diapers. <laughs> <laughs> asking Greg for microwaved milk and ginger shots, American bottled water, spaghetti, and olive oil. Yeah, I mean, this stuff was very funny, and it worked for me to fill in some of the gaps of what I thought was like maybe not enough commotion for an election night. Like there should be more people running around. It, it's it a well-oiled a machine. They're professionals. Come well, on, Gabby, yeah, respect I guess, them. I guess so. Um, what was so funny to me, but also it's also thematically important, but so funny that Tom had to keep asking Greg to like herd the kids out of the newsroom. Uh, he says no brass on the battlefield. It's one of Logan's con- uh, Geneva conventions. Yet they keep coming down and intruding. Yeah, I thought that was a really important point. I mean, there's a lot of question about how Logan would have handled this election night. Um, and we don't get a lot of insight mm. into how other news organizations function in this world. But we can presume that PGN would have a similar ethical wall in place and in real life this kind of thing with the brass on the battlefield seems definitely verboten i think the show has told us often that logan didn't have to directly interfere or step onto the floor himself because he had lieutenants like sid peach in place who knew his priorities and would protect his interest and when the kids show up in the control room it registers as a bridge too far for the atn crew and you know they have no consensus about what they want to implement, let alone anybody in that room that they trust. Uh, so they have to interfere more directly. That's the big difference. And that's what really registers, I think, for the first time with a lot of the ATN folks. It's like, hmm, something is really different under this new regime. And like maybe this night is not going to unfold uh, as previous elections have. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because just a few episodes, Logan was, what, uh, moseying menacingly around the newsroom. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. then he goes and he ma- he makes that speech that's like, holy shit, you know, um, okay, so, you know, everyone's on board, but but these kids are just kind of flailing and, and it's like, they're so out of their depth. Um, you can imagine Logan just like totally losing it, seeing them do this. Yeah, also the, just like the continual imagery of them like descending and then tom having to like get them to ascent it's sort of just like a reminder still of of tom's place in this world um yeah even if even if the boss's daughter is carrying his child um yeah i mean that's a that's a great shot of the three of them on the newsroom floor after having seen logan there earlier in the season it's a reminder of how they're all like different fractal like twisted copies of him right Mm -hmm. yeah and uh it's it's funny because they're so small and then of course like tom and greg are big and they're just like trying to herd them around Yeah, a lot of stuff with size like roman like (laughs) looking up at greg indignantly as he's trying to herd him out um one of the other characters we're introduced to here is darwin perry played by the actor adam godley who viewers might recognize as elliot schwartz from breaking bad or archie the archbishop on the great um He's a sort of amalgam of quant, stats guys, pollsters like Steve Kornacki or Nate Silver. These guys who get wheeled out every election cycle to like stand in front of the big board and assume a more prominent (laughs) role. And in legit news operations, as we're given to understand, they make a lot of the calls and the brass Mm -hmm. are really like following their lead. Um, The way that Roman and the others lean on him is very much out of the usual order, we sense. I think it also makes sense that he seems somewhat apolitical because a guy like this 
would be poached for his technical qualifications and not for ideology per se. Yeah, I mean, even at the end, like, you could tell a lot of the people in the production room you know, are not necessarily thrilled with what's going on. Pam, yeah, to say the, the least. Uh, uh, poor Sid, R.I.P. Sid. Um, it's yeah, it's it's worth noting that most Fox News employees don't share the company's politics, and we could probably assume the same of ATN. Although we don't really know for sure. I mean, there is a moment in um, in the episode when uh, Sid Peach and Tom are you know they first meet when she says that uh, we hire people who want to work here because Tom sort of you know. Uh, you know, he he makes the comments about yeah. Uh, I forgot what it is exactly, but just about oh well, yeah, like you know this stuff. So this is Logan's company, and he doesn't you know he doesn't have any influence here, and he makes the comment about being from the Midwest and and getting it. You know, he does, that he gets it. Um, but but he's sort of looking. He's sort of you know got contempt for the whole operation. And Sid is like, well, you know, people who work here want to work here. So so we don't know for sure. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that um, I think that the show has not necessarily been super consistent in how it's portrayed ATN over the years. We always wish they would mm-hmm. do more with it. I think there's a big piece of this episode where they have to, or they feel like they have to keep the ATN operation itself very grounded in like a documentary realism almost so that the main cast and that story can have more room to sort of play off that. Like, they have a very strong foundation that they can sort of bounce off of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I know in real life, I think we would presume that, like, people who work at Fox News, like, it's hard to remember now, but there was a period where it was not as extreme ideologically as it is now, and they at least pretended to be, quote-unquote, fair and balanced. That was their slogan for a long time. So there were a lot of professionals right. who worked there um, who presumably yeah. were not necessarily hardcore right-wingers. You know, they even had like the token liberal on the air. Um, they had, you know, personalities uh, like, uh, you know, like Juan, Juan Williams was always uh, they always had him as a token liberal. Smith, who was right, that? Yeah. They, they had a guy on the five who was their token liberal, too. Oh, I none don't of remember. these guys, none of these people were ever like that liberal, too. Um, yeah, it's been you know, so long just, since I watched Fox News every night. Just <laughs> it's <laughs> i i did literally used to watch fox news and just all the time just because you know you got to keep an, an eye on the enemy and i i, I like they used to be just really into political news i don't know yeah plus they had they got they got babes on there, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right um there's the there's another but, uh, we, we we didn't i don't i don't know that either of us were huge fans of the very cartoonish slapstick bit with the wasabi um i just thought that that was potentially <laughs> That seemed like it started to me as a submerged reference to broadcast news, uh, the Holly Hunter film, Holly Hunter, another Succession alum, uh, where the Albert Brooks mm-hmm. character gets his big shot at Weekend Anchor, and then when he goes uh, on screen for the first time, he like sweats so much it's like visible through his shirt. He's like soaked, um, <laughs> like because th- this is like an inversion of that where the Darwin's supposed to go on TV so he can give all these caveats about the Wisconsin call, but it, he gets soaked first so he can't go on TV, so they end up. I don't, right, they don't even they don't right, even put right. up the graphic that says pending call. They just call it for for Wisconsin straight out. So do we want to talk just I just just really really quick about why uh, it was odd for Tom to be like attributed to, to the call? Because I know my husband who's not American was like, well, wait, why does that matter? You know that it was Tom. Why is everybody mad at Tom now? Oh, you're talking about the you're talking about like when PGN shows him on the TV at the end and they're blaming Tom Wamsgans for it. Yeah, what is it? I, I don't know. Maybe I. We can cut this because I, maybe I just missed at the end how they arrived at that decision to like uh, make it Tom be the one who 
made the call because it's usually the head of the decision desk, right? Like it usually would have been it would have been Darwin. Yeah, presumably, but I mean, I, if other networks are trying to spin this into a story, they're going to want to attribute that to someone who higher up, and Tom is the head of ATN right now because Sid's gone. Um, so he's the mm-hmm. most senior person at ATN, and presumably the other networks. I'm like, I mean, I'm sure they will make hay about the Roy's, but they're also presuming that the that there is this wall in place, and that the Roy's are not directly calling the shots as we've seen them do the entire episode. So it makes sense that Tom right. is going to so be the once... scapegoat for this. And I do wonder if that's going to be. <laughs> I wonder if that's the end game for Tom if he if he's going to get shit canned because of this. And that would be one 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 configuration that that might that might potentially be plausible. Is if Greg moves up into Tom's spot, that might that would be that would be an apt ending for that relationship. That would be interesting. Yeah, weren't weren't you just talking about this last week? How Tom, like Tom throughout the series has always been just like the scapegoat as like the right wing ogre. Yeah, hired you know? hired yeah. hired to be fired, like a very high level <laughs> instance of somebody hired to be fired. I think they might actually like, follow through on that eventually. Yeah. Like speaking of true believers, you know, like I don't think like Tom's heart is really with this stuff. I think no. you know he's mu- he's much more of a hospitality conservative guy. hick. Uh, yeah, it was very funny during the Macon speech when he's <laughs> talking to Greg and he's like, maybe we can get somebody you know who's like a historian, somebody who's good with history, just to to say um, to say why this has happened in just, the past and just, why it'll all be fine. To say now. why. The- <laughs> mm. <laughs> Um. Yeah, a little comic relief in that very, very eerie uh, Mencken speech, which totally would never, ever happen in American politics, uh, that kind of language and uh, sort of flowery rhetoric th- that he used. But, we'll um, see. That was another interesting very, bit. Very, uh, Justin Kirk. Justin Kirk got COVID two days before he was supposed to shoot that scene mm, right, with his right, victory right. speech, and he completely <laughs> lost his voice. So they had to delay it, and they eventually shot it. On, I think on like a smaller set than they were originally planning to do. They might have originally had him with like a real like scary rally or something, but they but they didn't end up doing that. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting speech. Um, it was a good balance, I think, of like stuff that you know was a little bit too fancy for an American president speech, but also, um, you know, fits with the show and didn't feel totally implausible. Like the, the, the line about something clean and refreshing and true, um, you know, that, that I thought was, was, was really well done. Um, and then, you know, he, he, he speaks sort of in this like abstract, uh, kind of like highfalutin rhetoric but but then he brings up like the examples of welfare kings and queens yeah and i thought that kind of stuck out like a sore know. thumb to me i thought that was very odd i was like that's just such an obvious it was a throwback little weird to yeah reagan era politics that was a big reagan thing i mean i do think that is in is in line with with uh mankin's like ideology the way that he talked in 306 about uh you know i've been tending my farm for a bunch of years and then some guys in a truck and a boombox come and take it and you yeah know, like yeah the, the the great replacement stuff the idea that like immigrants or like unemployed or like you know leeches on society yeah all that stuff is like definitely yeah. in there but it is yeah it is an interesting speech it's a little it weird it doesn't yeah, necessarily too. like ring a lot of bells that you associate with like oh this is they don't do anything where it's like oh this is something hitler said and so he's the same as hitler or whatever <laughs> they don't do they don't do anything like that the, the yeah the, the the welfare kings and queens was the only part that really stuck out to me but yeah there are definitely a lot of like dog whistles there where you're reminded, like, oh yeah, this guy is like an actual like fascist. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, we're running super long. Uh, do character check-ins? Yeah, we we haven't talked about Connor at all. Well, we mentioned Connor briefly at the top. He gets the ambassadorship to Slovenia, so I guess good for him. Good for Willow. Yay! You know, Viet- 
and he got to have Vienna a, for lunch, know, Venice for influ- dinner, uh, Dubrovnik for breakfast. He got to have a say. He had an influence. Yeah, we learned that he had two. Uh, he had two running mates drop out. As, oh God! Had, <laughs> had, had we had we seen before that his campaign slogan was Connor Roy enough already? I like that. I think last week was the first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good <laughs> yeah that was very good um, yeah, that, and that was the best line of the episode when frank was like connor was running for president oh my god i was dying yeah that was that was like just you know classic succession yeah bringing it back a little bit wonder how much stuff um, they cut with just those guys like carl and frank and hugo and, <laughs> and, and, i know and mark in the background you just like hanging wonder. out i know um maybe one day we'll be privileged enough to see it but yeah uh, we we didn't just, we didn't talk a lot a ton about Roman because he's in kind of a static zone in this episode. I just thought of him the entire mm-hmm. episode as being in this place. He's trying to get to the place where he is at the end of the episode, which is a, he's in the Logan spot where the president is calling him up. He's got the president on speed dial. That's the that's the goal yeah. that he's going after. He sees this opportunity to get a win with Mencken, and he's just chasing it really hard. Like the the one th- one thing this episode was missing for me, or that I thought was a little bit more submerged, was what uh what it takes had that sense of just like this free floating crucible just like sexual hostility and bullying mm-hmm. um that we've that like the future freedom summit in that episode seemed that way and we've seen atn depicted that way before like the theme of just like well like there's definitely a theme of like women getting pushed out and it's very purposeful that you know jerry and like carolina are absent in this episode again like there's definitely lack of like women in the room the, i think yeah. the, i think the show's always purposeful uh when it you know removes those characters from the equation uh, but I mean, I I I like it when the show plays with sort of just like yeah, that sexual hostility, and there is a little bit more of that uh, sort of queer baiting flirtation between Mencken and Roman in this episode, where he begins the episode, of course, by calling Roman up like a booty call to his hotel suite, and we don't see, yeah. <laughs> and we don't see his like wife and child in the hotel suite. I think in that in in that first scene, uh, although they're glimpsed on stage with him at his at his rally. Yeah, there's uh Roman has a couple of lines that that uh you know with the you know sort of sexual disgustingness <laughs> when he says uh, nothing matters dad's dead and the country's a big pussy waiting to get fucked. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And he says something about uh just like going for it in terms of with some reference to like the bosom of America or something. I don't know. Yeah, he's like, let's um, put our heads into the bosom of history, and then he does like the motorboating noises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The motorboating sound. Yeah, he's yeah, very arrogant, very embittered. Um, I think this is like maybe the most bitter we've seen Roman for for a while. Um, he makes that comment about like who we're gonna blame, the blacks or the Jews. Very Logan esque. The way he says like shucks to Kendall when when Kendall, um you know, says he's like feeling kind of bad about the Ravenhead speech and the way everything's going. Um, very, very villainized. And yeah, I mean, even just like the chicken and steak thing that was, you know, it's, we haven't really seen this kind of bitterness about childhood stuff since like the Prague dog. Yeah. I did recall that a lot. I mean, this, I mean the, this episode, like it pays off stuff that's been, uh, building the entire series but i thought it was very notable how they really make no attempt to make roman like human or like likable in this episode like at all like they completely rely on your knowledge of him from previous episodes and they've already done a good job like i thought in living plus they did a great job showing how his grief and his anxiety over stepping into his father's shoes was like just turned on a dime into this vindictiveness and this anger um, that is mm-hmm. he's that is he's definitely burning off of in this episode, especially as he sees like his last ditch 
chance to get a win and to get some influence uh, by becoming the person like he gets some status over Ken here, who had seemed to have kind of big dicked him, big brothered him mm-hmm. previously because he's got the relationship with the president now, not Kendall. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a total dick to Shiv, uh, but, like, that's expected. And, I mean, it, it mirrors uh, what it takes. Those two were so mean to each other going back and forth. Um, <laughs> there was a funny moment when, like, Shiv's, like, dad would respect the process. And, and uh, <laughs> Roman's like, are you kidding me? You know, like, he, he would do whatever the fuck he want. He took out governments and... and he does this thing where it's like a very quick impression of Logan where he's like, oh, fuck Lyle, send. And, and you know, and he's doing he's doing an impression of dad doing something, you know, really, really shady. And um, it's it's just so funny. It's like one of those little throwaway things where you're like, wait, what? Like, what was the facts? What, what did he there? do? Yeah. What did he do? Who, who, <laughs> was it the Canadian was government Ly- he who, destroyed? What did he do? Who was, who was Lyle? Yeah. And then it's like, you know, um, Shiv's like he ended wars and he's like he yeah he ended wars that he started you know um just just interesting how uh, you know the Logan Specter once again in the room and then when when uh Kendall is angry at Shiv and he's yelling at her and he does the the stutter impression you know similar to the way that Logan did the impression of Shiv at the end of yes yes last yeah. season um you know again just like more more of Logan's cruelty you can see sort of um uh, seeping out of these boys and you know out of shiv too a little bit in 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 other ways um but the cruelty specifically here with 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 um roman and kendall to some extent and gosh i love strong's Um, face watching uh the menken speech in that scene because i mean if you don't feel if you don't feel the dread from menken's rhetoric you really feel it from just like the the blank sort of determined stare that kendall has you really see like all the humanity kind of like leached out of him what strong has been talking about in interviews is his sort of like michael corleone like the erosion of mm-hmm. his soul and that that line where it's like yeah they, they they really punctuate that with the strings i think when he says he's a guy we can do business with and the market is holding yeah, the he's, leash he's, yeah he's trying to rationalize it to himself and then of course yeah you know he's 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 uh feeling a, a wave of guilt and then we get this phone call from him to rava in the car like can i come see the kids like after all of that yeah. you know um and after promising your daughter that you know she'll be safe in the world uh you know you got so you were <laughs> you were so spiteful towards you know your sister's betrayal that you yeah. basically just uh told your daughter to fuck off yeah yeah well i think you're right about him feeling guilt in that moment and trying to rationalize and we've been talking about a similar shift and and Kendall are, and we know what uh, Shiv does to suppress her guilt as she chases power. Like, guilt can be a, a dangerous thing for these people because they'll do a lot to yeah. sort of evade it and suppress it. Um, just briefly on Matson, who's on the phone in pajama pants with Shiv in this episode. <laughs> uh, he, he has a very strong reaction to the election. You know, he keeps telling Shiv how crazy it is. He's got the, I guess he's got more European perspective on all this you know maybe you know doesn't have his accent also was really coming out a lot in this in this episode but yeah go doesn't ahead, have the context for the american system i mean like we've teased out how you know Matson has some reactionary leadings of his own but he also is feeling that i think he's feeling that brexit thing a bit of just like wow i really didn't think you guys would do this you know yeah. like I, I just didn't <laughs> think you had this in you you know it's not necessarily that he like thinks Megan is like deplorable or anything like that necessarily. I think it's just like, man, I I just <laughs> didn't think you guys were going there. Yeah, like touche. Um, the way the way Matson said it's stupid, but the way he says Gregory Peggery <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it says that he has him as 
he had him as part of a conversation as a normalist. A normalist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mencanus and normalist, um, yeah. And Greg alluding to that they go to like very unseemly places and he had to dance with an old man. Like, of course, these like Scandinavian freaks are just like even darker than we yeah. <laughs> previously had speculated. I meant to fit this observation uh, in our last episode, but I just think it's funny at this point that Shiv with her allegiance with Matson is she's basically auditioning for a job at a streamer because I think that's just such a yeah. I think that's just the perfect job for Shiv right like can't you just imagine her as like a global ambassador for Netflix or something like I don't know if you read that profile of Bella Baharia the Netflix executive uh, in, no, the, in the New Yorker recently having all these meetings with people and like fitting in in all these various cultures and just making decisions about what terrible TV shows are going to make and has like no taste or opinions of her own like yeah, that's a perfect right. that's a perfect job for Shiv. She'd be great it at that. It could be perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hope it works out. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should wrap up a couple of stray lines. I I wrote down that uh, that line uh, that our friend Vikram also called out Ken's line to Roman about America. It is kind of a nice idea, right? All the different people together. Oh my god, I'm gl- I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah, again, just like <laughs> Kendall. I don't know. He um. You know, he just doesn't have the courage of his convictions. He can believe this stuff a little bit and get it a little bit, but um Yeah. More, more know, it's it's immaterial to him, so Yeah, he is he is probably superficially culturally liberal, as you said, uh before. Right. But I mean, yeah, I mean with all these people, that's uh you know, it's it's superficial. It's aesthetic. All right. Um well I guess we should wrap it up. Thanks to thanks to our guest Gabby. Thanks thanks Gabby for, for doing the show with me. <laughs> I appreciate you. Happy to be here. Do you have anything you want to plug for the <laughs> listeners? What's what's Leo up to? <laughs> oh man. Um funeral next week. It's gonna be great. I'm doing great. Uh, two more episodes. We're all gonna we're all episodes. grieving the this end is... of succession. We're, we will all be weeping. It's getting tough, yeah. guys. It's it's getting tough. It's getting weird. Um hope everyone's hanging in there. Yeah, you can reach out if you want. I'll, I'm just I just rewatch episodes, random episodes from random seasons. I'll just pick one um yeah my my brain is is uh held hostage by this show until yeah a few more weeks i just make i just make photoshops where greg is big and muscly and holding a baby tom in his arms that's that's how i cope (laughs) i'm selling those i'm selling those on my patreon (laughs) all right folks yes thanks for listening thanks to gabby thanks producer dan black if you're enjoying the roycast please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your app of choice, you can also show your support with a contribution via the square link in our bio or just by spreading the good word about the podcast. We'll be back next week to discuss the penultimate episode of Succession's final season. Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye.
brother to you And one deserving of affection And is our purpose not the same on this earth?